Stanford University. The David H. Liu Lecture Series in Design was created by David's family and has been ongoing for more than 10 years now, drawing many of the greatest minds of design from around the world to speak to Stanford and our surrounding communities about their work. Hey, guys. Um, tonight, I have the pleasure of introducing Alex Werperfirth. Mr. Werperfirth earned his degree in marketing from the Wharton School at the University of, Pen of Pennsylvania. And uh, also, I'm informed that he got a, a designer PhD in, in Europe. That's one of the special ones. Um, ouch, <laughs> ouch. Um, he's had a seat in a number of companies, including a, a brand manager position at Procter & Gamble. Um, he has been managing director at Lowen Partners uh, in, in Germany and is presently a partner at Dial House, which is a San Francisco firm that specializes in strategy, market research, emerging media, next generation creative, and guerrilla production. Sure. Sure. Um, and has authored a fascinating book called Brand Hijack, which discusses the unanticipated co-creation and even cultification of brands and products by their consumers. Um, and there are a couple books in the pipeline, and, and uh, keep your eyes out for those. And uh, no more talking from me. Here's Alex. Thanks. Thanks, guys. I um, want to say a couple of things up front. Uh, first of all, obviously, this is a marketing talk, not a design talk, uh, although I think a lot of this stuff is actually very applicable to design. Um, I tend to swear a lot in my presentations, and I apologize. <laughs> uh, the F-bomb does come in, and it's kind of English as a second language, I guess, is my excuse for that. Um, and thirdly, I got a ringer in the audience, uh, which is kind of awkward for me. My wife is here, so if there's any question coming from there, they don't count, especially nasty questions. So uh, um, uh, that's kind of a, a beginning. Uh, what uh, uh, helps me a lot is if you guys have any questions during the thing, just shout them out and let's talk about them. So the more interactive we can make this thing, the, actually the better uh, uh, for me. This thing is called the, uh, the dawn of a new marketing era. That's usually kind of a two or three hour presentation. And I'll, I'll kind of uh, do death by PowerPoint in, uh, in about 45 minutes here. So I'll, I'll quickly go through this. And some of the stuff, uh, if you want me to slow down on a couple of charts, because they're maybe a, a bit more interesting, let me know. Otherwise, I'll just kind of jump through. Uh, I always, whatever presentation I have, I always start with this quote. It's from The Economist in 2001. Everyone else has been, everything else has been reinvented. Distribution, new product development, the supply chain. But marketing is stuck in the past. While consumers have changed beyond recognition, marketing has not. Which is a scary uh, quote and is nearly 10 years old now. And we're still stuck in the same thing, which is always amazing to me. Um, and probably in another five years, I'm still going to use that quote and still be amazed that nothing really has, uh, has changed. And, and, and basically, this entire talk is about what really is changing, why it's changing, and how we kind of got to move forward. Um, and I always kind of get that question about from new marketing era, is that really real? Is that bullshit? Well, what's, what's really going on here? And uh, what I kind of like to do first is, is go uh, kind of into the, into the past and see, have there been marketing errors before. And really, there, there have been two before. So every 30 or 40 years, something new happens. So in 1933, the first real marketing innovation happened. Actually, P&G did that. Uh, Oxidol was the first to sponsor a radio program, Ma Perkins, it was called. And, uh, and suddenly, they realized, my god, the more we mention our brand name in this program, 
the higher our shares go, the more we're selling. And funnily enough, they actually started talking about are we abusing people too much? Are we intruding too much into their lives already back then? The same discussion that we're having today. And basically, this was the age of frequency. So everyone after Oxidol realized brand name. Just let's mention that thing as much as we can. This whole joke about let's make the, uh, the, the logo bigger and print ads basically comes out of, uh, out of there. And then in the, in the 60s, something interesting happened. Uh, Doldan uh, Birnbeck came about, and they really brought originality with them. And a lot of the advertising that we see today is still based on Helmut Krona's and Birnbeck's uh, work. We basically call it the age of originality. Creativity suddenly was in. So to call your own car a lemon, basically today would be very ballsy. Yeah, so that's uh, happened then. And, and then turn of the uh, century, something really funny happened. I just want to apologize to Mike's mom and Josh's mom and my mom. I am so, so sorry because it is my fault because it was my project. I'm so scared. Okay. Anyone know what that was? Has anyone seen it? It's a really shitty movie, <laughs> right? But it has become this amazing experience, and, and, and that really kind of called in this, this new era that we're in right now. And, you know, there's been all this talk about how the Internet has changed everything, and we actually uh, worked with Hollywood for a while with New Line and with uh, Universal, and they were always, well, build a website for us, and the movie will sell itself, and it had nothing to do with this at all. Suddenly there was a new meaning to this thing. This was no longer a film. Right? What Blair Witch was, was an urban myth. So rather than sell a very mediocre indie horror movie with no stars, no distribution, and no money behind it, they created this urban myth. Did people really die in the woods? This is a snuff movie. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it was this thing that people could engage with and put their own meaning on. And that really was one of the first times uh, uh, something like this happened. Uh, funnily enough, always kind of 30, 40 years after uh, uh, the other. So let's do a reality check for a second. This is actually now four years old. 65% of Americans feel constantly bombarded by ad messages. 63% feel that ads have little relevance to them. 60% find ads to be misleading. 56% avoid buying products that overwhelm them with advertising. And 54% feel manipulated by ads. And as a professional, I can only say, holy shit, <laughs> right? Whatever I've learned in the past. And at P&G, you learn marketing kind of more traditionally than anywhere else. I know exactly how that old system works. It doesn't work today anymore. People just reject it. And one of the things that... Uh, that we really like to ask at Dial House is, is why. I mean, that's one of our favorite things to do is, is what, what is contributing to this rejection of conventional marketing? And there is kind of this, this answer by everyone, well, you know, there's a rising immunity to marketing and there's a rising indifference towards brands and there are a couple of charts here, you have seen them. 
you know, attention deficit from media overkill, you know, whether there's 3,000 commercial messages a day that we're uh, uh, confronted with. Uh, interesting study, TV recall is down 70% over the past 30 years. So really, even though buying costs a lot more, you get a lot less effect for it. And you can't avoid advertising anymore. This is an award-winning ad out of, out of England that was in toilet stalls and pubs, right? A, a very hot vindaloo, so you have to go to the toilet. And you can't even go anywhere anymore be, uh, without being bombarded by ads. Um, this is probably my, my favorite uh, chart. I could talk hours about this. I, I love marketing and the craft of marketing, but we've abused it. Just uh, everyone in the business, it's, uh, it's amazing how we, when we see some space that we have to brand it, right? So Naomi Klein and No Logo talked about Levi's going into her neighborhood in Toronto and just completely ruining that vibe by just having Levi's logos all over the place. My favorite story is from Sony, right? Sony Pictures, uh, suddenly all their movies that came out had this thumbs up, five stars from, uh, uh, from this one movie critic all the time. And he, like American Gigolo 2 or whatever it was called, thumbs up, best comedy of the year. The guy was totally fabricated. He didn't exist. His newspaper didn't exist. It was a fabrication by uh, the marketing department of Sony. And whenever something interesting happens in culture today, we just got to grab that and make it branded and make it ours and co-opt it, right? And uh, um, I'm laughing at some of my charts because they're so old by now. But Woodstock 2 killed Woodstock, the original Woodstock. You know, Woodstock 2 brought to you by Tide and Pepsi. Right, is something that just completely kills us in culture today. And I, I think we just have to be, you know, Foucault talked about how there is, is uh, power without responsibility in media. I think we have that same responsibility, whether it's design or marketing or whatever, and we just got to think about our consequences of what we're doing. We're killing it right now. Yeah, And then something uh, else is happening where kind of people don't buy our bullshit anymore. Right? There is this devaluation of image. And you know, what we're selling is this, that Chanel makes you seductive, and in reality, it makes us smell like our mom. Right? Budweiser doesn't make you a funny dude. If you drink too much of it, you become loud, sweaty, and obnoxious. Right? And Nike doesn't make you a hero. It actually makes you just 100 or 200 bucks poorer. And that is something that people are just realizing and, and knowing. And, um, uh, that's kind of the, the surface thing, but when you can go deeper into this whole thing, something really interesting comes to light, and that is, as a culture, we are losing faith in authority figures. And because of technology, we have a lot more autonomy, right? So uh, I should have also warned you about the uh, poorly designed charts here. This is one of my worst. Um, and I'm speaking at a design school. Uh, but uh, let me just explain that very quickly, and that's normally a really uh, a long chart too. But basically, we've learned that we can't trust institutions anymore. We can't trust the government. Cheney is lying to us. Uh, we can't trust the church anymore. Look at the Catholic Church. Uh, we can't uh, trust education anymore. Uh, look at Columbine, right? We can't trust reality anymore. J.T. Leroy, out of the streets, total fabrication. New York Times fabricating stuff. Reality TV, <laughs> that's not reality, right? 
And we can't trust consumer culture anymore either. So I used to be a huge Nike fan when they came out and, you know, and I thought, wow, what a, what a brand. And it totally speak to me. And then you learn they abuse child labor in Asia. Right? And you kind of lose all faith in it. I talked about uh, Sony Pictures beforehand. And so what has happened is that we go from a very controlled environment to a very self-directed environment as a culture. At the same time, we're moving from a dependency to a self-reliance as people. So if we can't trust institutions anymore, well, we take action our, ourselves. Move on. Right? Uh, uh, homeschooling. Becoming spiritual rather than going to church. Uh, if we can't trust reality anymore, well, then we take control ourselves. We start blogging. We, we create our own reality. And if we don't like what brands are doing, we strike back. Nike had to change its labor policy because people protested. They stopped buying Nike, and they actually changed the labor policy. Now, so there's something really interesting happening where uh, kind of we as, as marketers are losing our authority and consumers are, are gaining autonomy. Very postmodern theory stuff, very normal stuff, but it has a lot of implications for us. So when you look kind of through uh, the ages a little bit of, of the relationship between consumers and, and marketers, it has completely flipped, right? So 1950s to 1970s, it was the marketing age. People were grateful to hear that, you know, brand X was 20% wider than brand Y. Brands and marketing were new and different. And then the 80s and 90s kind of, you know, competing with the Joneses, with your neighbors, uh, uh, was, was uh, that's what it was all about. Age of aspiration. We became very image conscious, right? And then in the mid-90s, something really funny happened. Uh, uh, you know, when you were suddenly sitting in focus groups, you heard the people behind the glass, the one-way mirror, say, well, what they're really trying to do, and then they would give you exactly what strategy you were talking about, and you were just shocked behind the glass, going, holy shit, they know more about marketing than we do. Right? You suddenly had that professional consumer, very, very cynical. Right? And there was all this media and, and, and product explosion going on at the same time. And what you have today is a very empowered consumer who feels that they're in control. Right, so there has been an entire flip uh, over the last uh, uh, 50 or so years. Yeah. So what you have today is, an, is a consumer, uh, talk about postmodern here is uh, Karen O from the IAS in a Karen O t-shirt, um, who is all about trust thyself. Right? I don't believe in authorities anymore. My peers are my filter, but I, I rely on myself. Right? And uh, I won't go through all the, uh, all the points here, but what's really interesting is that there is a communal responsibility that's building up. People aren't just doing it by themselves anymore. There is people are interested in community today. So how does this new consumer, this Karen O, relate to marketing? So we, uh, as much as we say we never actually do research ourselves, we, we did a study together with uh, Val's, your uh, neighbors, and MRI. And, and we basically did their segmentations out of 25,000 people at 21 years and older. And we basically looked at who still buys into marketing and who doesn't. And it's, uh, when you look at it, only 56% of the population still is into marketing. And the rest is not. And I'm going to show you a little bit kind of who they are and what makes them tick. 
So traditional consumer, that's kind of what our entire marketing system is still based on. There's nothing standing out from, they actually see marketing as, uh, as entertainment marketing works from. Let's uh, take a look at them. I need sound. Okay. The traditional consumer is a consumer who buys into advertising. Whatever you say, Mr. Billboard. A consumer who doesn't care if their shoes come from a sweatshop, as long as they have the right logo on the side. It's a consumer who defines themselves with what they own. Like so many others, I had become a slave to the IKEA nesting instinct. Uh, yes, I'd like to order the Erica Picari dust ruffles. If I saw something clever, like a little coffee table in the shape of a yin-yang, I had to have it. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? I had it all, even the glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections, proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hardworking indigenous peoples of wherever. I was holding, yeah. So there you have the traditional consumer. Then uh, uh, you have this non-consumer. My dad, actually, gee, your, your dad, you, you'll crack up when you see this. More than, you guys, you all know this guy. It's probably your dad's too, right? The, the, the guy who walks into the car shop and he knows the car better than the salesman. He knows the wholesale price already. There is nothing you can do. He hates marketing. It's an obstacle to him. And he just knows everything better, right? I guarantee you'll recognize people in your family, yourselves on this one. The non-consumer views advertising as a distraction, an outlet for lies and hype, so they revert to their own resourcefulness. Do you have any Excedrin or extra strength Tylenol? Gee, I think all I got is a C-to-cell-acylic acid generic. See, I can get 600 tablets of that for the same price as 300 of a name brand. That makes good financial sense, good advice. Hey, this is real smoked salmon from Nova Scotia, Canada, $24.95 a pound. It only cost me $14.12 after tax, though. I'm giving this whole thing as a promotional expense. That's why I invited clients instead of friends. You having a good time, Mark? How you doing? Why don't you have some of the brie? It's at room temperature. You think it's too warm in here for the brie? Louis, I'm going home. Oh, it's cutting out. I'm going home. I would be going home, too. Um, and then you kind of have this, this small group of... Uh, and, and these are bad labels by us, any, uh, by the way, but this anti-consumer, right, who for some reason doesn't like to fill out our research <laughs> questionnaires. But we uh, think they're about 2% uh, of the uh, population. So Naomi Klein said, through ad busting, computer hacking, and spontaneous illegal street parties, young people all over the world are aggressively reclaiming space from the corporate world, unbranding it guerrilla style. Right? These guys are political about marketing. They hate it and they fight it. And what's important about them, even though they're very small in size, they're very influential. Right? And they're basically kind of leading to where this whole thing is going. So let's. The anti consumer is anti brand. Fueled by corporate corruption, bureaucracy, and greed, the anti consumer has taken it upon themselves to reclaim space from the corporate world oftentimes by any means necessary. While anti-consumers are politically outspoken, their influence is often lost on the masses. But believe it or not, even they can be brand loyal. Yeah, they can. We, uh, we worked with them on uh, Pabst Blue Ribbon. It was quite fascinating. And then finally, you have this, this what we call the post-consumer, this, this more 
explorer type, uh, uh, well-educated uh, mindset is about trying new things, lots of excitement, et cetera. And they, they're not anti-marketing, but they take our marketing and kind of construct it for themselves. You'll probably recognize yourselves in this uh, quite a bit. So let's take a look. The post-consumer is the most resourceful and constructive of those who reject marketing messages. If somebody wants to distribute our records and allow us absolute freedom, then I'm not opposed to people making money. <coughs> it's just, it's a mafia. And um, until they can write the letter that I'm writing, they are the postman and I'm the letter writer, period. Self-reliant. Self-constructed. Independent. Non-commercial. Individual. Creative. DIY. I've been called all of those things. But don't label me. I live my life as an active participant, not a passive sheep. Emphasis on my life. So don't get caught up trying to fit me into a demographic box. Yeah, I know how the system works. Am I out to smash it? Not really. Do I buy into it? Not really, unless there's a way I can use it to share my ideas. I don't look to the mainstream for motivation. I don't care what's popular right now. And frankly, I tuned out those messages a long time ago. The prepackaged entertainment lifestyle experience doesn't do it for me. I make my own movies, record my own music, build my own furniture, or I get it directly from people who do. I love connecting with people cut from the same cloth as me. That's satisfying. We live by our own rules. We choose substance over frills or fake promises. We don't need to be hip to what's hard or not. Who cares about chasing that stuff when you could be mixing bits and pieces of culture to create something original? That's how I express myself. Entertain myself. And put my own stamp on my life. I don't follow fashion or trends. But sometimes they follow me. My message to marketers, I don't hate you, but I don't need you either. If you want to engage me on my own terms, pay Oh, cut out. Pay attention. All right? You got to pay attention. So that's basically who we're designing for these days, who we're marketing to, or with better, right? So how is that? How can we, mar how can we design, how can we market to such an unreceptive audience? And certainly not like this. Not like I'm taught from P&G, right? Where I have this authoritative brand that somehow fabricates this promise to a very passive consumer, right? It just doesn't work anymore. People just don't buy it anymore. What we need to do now it's kind of re-engage people, make them, uh, make them carry. And, and that's one of the key things whenever we start a new project is how can we make people care about this stuff? What can we say? What point of view can we have to make people care about what we're saying right now? Because people are just too disengaged. And that's the, <laughs> again, a mind-blowing chart here. Um, so if it's no longer top-down, it's certainly not bottom-up either. So this whole crap about, you know, consumer is king isn't really true either. What, what basically is happening today, that you have a very active consumer within their cultural context, and a very authentic meaning comes out of this, and then somehow this, this brand participates with this, right? And uh, I'll actually, I'll show you the, the perfect example uh, about this in a second, and I'll go back to the slide. But this is kind of how it works today. Consumers are no longer acting alone 
they're in their cultural context, and they're kind of leading us, and it's more about them and from their perspective than our top-down approach. Yeah, so it's all about meaningful marketing today. It takes a position on societal issues that make people question who they are and how they live their lives. Is that the example now? Yeah, it is. Hold on. So let's, uh, let, let me show you the perfect example for this. Show me a smile then. Don't be unhappy, can't remember when. I last saw you laughing. If this world makes you crazy and you've taken all you can bear, you call me up because you know I'll be there. And I see your truth. That's pretty amazing. I wish we'd done that. This is like one of my absolute heroes. And, and when you look back at the uh, at this slide, it's you know very active consumer within their cultural context. Don't feed me the size zero model anymore. I want to define beauty my own way. And here is a very old brand that kind of participates in that and and basically becomes a very passive champion for this. It's not about we kind of gentle your skin 20% better than X or we make you more whatever. Something very authentic happening there, right? And this comes out of a 100-year-old brand with absolutely no product news and suddenly they in a very stale category, right? It's just amazing stuff. Um, again, this is a very old chart. I, crack up seeing all these old brands. But basically, these meaningful brands, first of all, they're about something bigger than the brand itself. So Doc Martens is a gardening shoe for elderly women. That's how it started. And it became an icon for youth generation after the youth generation. Um, one of my favorite stories is about like if you're going to be meaningful, you got to ignore traditional research. So when uh, Dietrich Mateschitz, the founder of Red Bull, uh, did his, uh, his initial research in Austria. The market research firm came back to him and said, don't quit your day job. Worst results we've ever had. This is, this is never going to work. And luckily, he had already quit two years before and kind of just continued. Um, you know, quality isn't what we define as quality anymore. PBR, we worked on it. It is piss water. It's, it's not good beer. It's, it's brewed by Miller Brewing. But it's a very meaningful brand to certain cultures. Yeah? And uh, traditional marketing doesn't build brands anymore. Starbucks, eBay as, as great examples. Um, and so what does that mean, a meaning? What is a cultural meaning? It is the third place, like Starbucks. It's a champion for women's self-esteem. It's liquid cocaine in the, in, the, uh, uh, in the case of Red Bull. And it's no longer about being positioned, but about taking a position, about having a point of view today. Oh. I got to refresh that and give new examples. Um, and what's interesting too, and I talked about that uh, quickly before, it's, it's no longer as an individual consumer. It's uh, what we call a collective eye, right? Uh, it is an interpersonal connection. So it's no longer 
about a functional value, but it's about a social value. It is no longer about status and image, but about symbols and rituals and what it means within communities. It's no longer about individual motivations, but about group behavior. Yeah? And uh, brand meaning is, is constructed through shared use rather than here, let us tell you what this product is and kind of uh, uh, what you're supposed to do with it. Uh, no? Yeah. No, it isn't. And, I, uh, and there are a couple of people thinking about what we call them people. You know, one of the, the big things that, <laughs> that, that we do is we try to fall in love with that audience, right? And we try to, to find things that we can relate to. We try to understand motivations, values, attitudes, and, 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 and see, you know, do we have friends that are like that and so forth so that you that you kind of get some respect for people. Like most people in our industry don't have respect for their consumers or even more target audience. Right here, let me shoot you, let me target at you. Right, so I think there is something fundamentally changing there. I, if you have a solution, I'd love to hear it. I, people. <laughs> right. So a couple of years back, we, we did an interesting study. We, we were working with Napster and it became clear to us that Napster was a movement. It was not a typical brand. And, and what we wanted to do is, is make sure that we understand how movements work. So we went into some fairly interesting movements. We, we looked into, into religious sects. Uh, and we looked in, uh, into Scientology, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Moonies, and Maharishi to figure out how they kind of recruit, retain, and deploy their members. And we kind of found out how that works, and then we said, wow, cult brands, do they work the same way? And it was eerie how similar it all was. So basically what you start with is you're either in or out. So if you're out, there is a barrier to you, right? So Linux is a great example of a brand that has kind of this mystique behind it, and you're either in or out. And there's a great story of the CTO from uh, FedEx who suspected that some of his... Uh, people were working on Linux in their free time. So he, he, uh, he sent out an anonymous uh, email inviting everyone of the Linux community to come to a meeting. And then a lot of his direct reports showed up. Um, and uh, you know, so that's all about you know, being on the inside versus the outside. And then what you have is this, is this brainwashing going on, right? This elaborate initiation process. And Harley is great about that. They do these rallies. They show you how to start riding a, a hog and so forth. And, uh, and basically, you focus very much on that smaller inner circle. And then the next thing that happens is you develop this parallel universe, right? And eBay was great at that in the beginning because yeah, they had their own terms and, and ratings and you know, uh, ways to bid and, and, uh, and so forth. Uh, and then finally you get to the brand meaning. One of the things that we discovered uh, analyzing cults is that people never join for the ideology. They join for the community. And only over time do they really understand and buy into what this thing is all about. And Apple, my God, are, are they, uh, are they a, a master of that? Yeah, so that was really interesting for us to just see how kind of brand communities uh, uh, develop and, and, uh, and, and how to actually foster that. And the iPod is a, is a great example of that because it's both kind of the, 
the most personal thing you can do. You just tune out people, right? No longer there, but then these obnoxious white earbuds certainly tell you, yeah, I'm part of the tribe, and let me see, you know, iPod uh, jacking, what's, what's on your iPod, and so forth. Yeah. Um, and another other interesting thing that happens with, with these meaningful brands is that they have, rather than this one shot, here is our one ad campaign or whatever, they all have these, uh, John Grant calls them, uh, uh, molecules of, of little initiatives that all fit under this cultural cluster. So if the iPod is all about music liberation, you know, there are so many different things that also appeal to different people that you can tap into. So it's, it's no longer this one thing that makes these things tick. Uh, Starbucks, uh, uh, same example, um, that has completely changed that, that landscape. Yeah? Um, so how do you get to a meaningful brand idea uh, today? And, and uh, uh, at least in our job at Dollhouse, we, we, we go through culture. Right? We look into the culture of people. So we, we just, uh, uh, we're working on STP oil right now, it, uh, which is fascinating. They're part of Clorox now. And we looked into redneck culture for our solutions. Fascinating study. Yeah, Altoids, we looked into eccentricity, what that means, and kind of to understand that, that eccentric culture. And you know, another key question that we always ask is, how can a brand become a meaningful part of people's lives? So we're turning that question around, right? So it's no longer about what can we do engineering-wise as a, as a product, and more what would make sense from people's perspective. Um, and the way that we look into finding these ideas is, is, and these are just a couple of the questions that we ask, is there an anxiety that we can help relieve? Is there a status quo we can help uh, escape? Is there an injustice we can help reform? Is there apathy out there and we need to inspire empathy? Is there an ailment we can heal? Are there flawed assumptions? Uh, uh, can we emancipate something from authority? Is there an identity crisis we can help resolve? Yeah, as in the case of Dove. Yeah, I won't, because we only have 45 minutes, go into the examples of each of those. Let me show you two campaigns that we've done that are based on this. Cultural anxiety is one. We worked on, uh, on Red Stripe. This is actually a, a quote from Doug Holt, uh, who wrote about uh, uh, VW on this. You're too sharp and too much of an individual to be suckered by mass market. We just supply you the canvas, strip bare of any pretense, and it's up to you to put your identity into it. And this is all about an audience that hates conforming. Right? The beer industry is all about dictating up to what kind of girl you're supposed to date. Right? Every brand comes with baggage, with an image up front. And Red Stripe and Zing Dao as another example, it's just, it's just refreshingly blank of that. So it was a, a blank canvas to, to play with. And we kind of uh, try to make it a, a symbol of self-reliance and uh, looked very deeply into the culture of Jamaica, into the culture of punk, because it was such a huge uh, uh, punk icon in the UK in the 70s and early 80s and find out that the ethos really was do it yourself, right? Uh, and, uh, and so we uh, built an entire uh, campaign about this and we looked at this attitude and we found out that it's been there right from the start. So the brewers in 1928 finally were fed up with always waiting from beer coming from England and said screw this, we're, we're gonna start brewing it ourselves. Yeah, and it turned into the punk scene in the UK in the 1980s, which was basically fuck the system 
And today, it has turned into suck the system, right? Spike Jones being a perfect example of a complete nonconformist who has figured out how to work the Hollywood system in his favor, as an example. Yeah, so that's a big change, but it's all based on that same attitude. And uh, that's when we went really deep in punk culture, also into Jamaican culture, and we saw that they had these things in, in common, these beliefs in common, a belief in self-reliance, a can-do attitude, cut-and-mix attitude, no frills, and perseverance. And then we, uh, we sent a documentary uh, filmmaking team into uh, Jamaica uh, to, uh, to see whether they could capture this self-reliant life in, uh, in Jamaica uh, and, and the role that Red Stripe plays in it. Let me show you some of the ads. The first uh, and uh, parts of documentaries, well, the first ad was an internal ad that kind of explains it. Red Stripe is a premium import brand, and it is so confident in its own skin that it's, it's unpretentious. It doesn't have the glitz and the glamour of other premium brands. It just says, I know who I am. I'm a confident bear. I know I'm a darn good bear. So forget about the external packaging. It's the content. It's what's inside. Red Stripe, the great Jamaican bear, and one of the world's greatest beers. Awesome. Everybody said, we never know you had waves in Jamaica. I said, yeah, I know, because you were just looking at the posters of Negril. You know, so that's why you never know so we have waves in Jamaica. But it's not in the safe area. It's not in the tourism, you know, approved boundaries. You know, where they're going to say, well, I don't know if you should go out there. You know, it's pretty far away from the security that we provide here at the hotel, luxury spa. So them kind of try to scare people into staying there and spending all the money there. And you know what I mean? You might find you can stay somewhere for 30 bucks a night instead of 150, you know? And you might find it's a nicer beach and the people are more friendly. Everybody's not all in your face trying to sell you a big bunch of beads or something. You might find people looking at you as a, a curiosity, you know? And if you're not afraid of people coming up to you and say, where you're from, man? Because they don't get to see people like that every day. So you get a different experience. But it's just a different vibe, you know? So most people don't know about surfing in Jamaica. Them don't, they never see the guy coming into the area and driving in and stopping at the local bar and buying a round of drinks and talking to the people and making a friend and asking some local fisherman, is there anywhere where there's good ways? And say, yeah, come with me. You can leave your car at my house and walk down here and out there is there, you know? Well, my name is Fly, otherwise known as Delroy Farbs. And the name of this bar is Pelican Bar. Well, we are in the southwest of St. Elizabeth in Jamaica. How did you get the idea for this? You well, think you were crazy? Yeah, because I was crazy and it never, nothing never gonna happen. But each time they tried to tell me something, I used like their, their discouragement as a bootstrap. And then like you, you bring like a cooler of ice out here like when it's busy and... Yeah, yeah I have, a, I have a, a fridge behind here so I just use it with all the supplies I need and add it to it. And when people come, then I serve them cold ice beer. It's a work of art and it's coming from my heart because I didn't really use a plan. Didn't really make it fancy, but natural, natural.
I would say at least a good 20, 25 of our relatives are, have been garbage men. It takes me back to where, when I was four years old, and Mr. Young used to pick up my garbage. And I used to jump up and down, exactly how they do. I am the police of garbage, because I see who throw away what. I know what customer been naughty, what customer's been nice. I know when a business doing good and when it's doing bad, because you can, you can always determine by the garbage that they throw out. If it don't make trash, it don't make cash. A lot of times I get on my route now, I, I see bags with tears and I see holes. Those are ones that you have to be extra careful with. But out of good bag, you know, you're going to always have problems around the garbage can. You pick up a bag and surprises all over the ground. The thing I like about my job is mainly when I get up in the morning, I make a change. And not only for me, but for my kids and for my community. The most rewarding thing to me is when somebody just comes up and says, thank you. That's it, just, just as long as they say thank you. Oh, what I love about being a garbage man is that it's a job that nobody don't want to do. And I don't have to worry about nobody trying to take my job. I kind of like to sweat for my job, for, for my money. I like to be able to say that I, I actually worked for my money. I don't mind doing it. I love it. I could never see myself doing anything else. I've always wanted to be a garbage man, especially when I was a kid. My dad was a garbage man, and he'd take me to school. And he could tell all the kids, hey, man, my dad brings me to school in a garbage truck. And kids were all jealous. The hardest day to be a garbage man is when we get people that, if they bag tears, they tend to blame us. And we try to tell them, hey, come here. Look at this cheap bag you're using. If they have a good, strong bag, then there's no problem. If they buy one of these cheap bags, there's going to be trouble. I have 14 schools that I have to pick up. And every time I see those kids, I must blow my horn because they love to see the garbage truck. I try to get there a certain time every morning to catch them. See how little kids are? See, they love these big trucks. I don't know what it is. 95% of the time, the kids are the ones taking the garbage out. And a lot of people get those weak bags. And by the time the kids get to the garbage can, it busts open. That's a bad sight for harvest. When I get to this one customer, he's always out there when I'm picking up his trash and he give me a thumbs up. And if I'm there extra early, he give me a two thumbs up. It makes me feel extremely good just to see that I put a smile on at least one person's face. One thing I dislike is wheat bags that leave more garbage on the ground than in the truck. A strong bag for a strong garbage man. That, that's what we need out here. That's the garbage man's dream. If I would have told you a half hour ago that you were laughing and interested in seeing a documentary and then ads about glad trash bags, you would have never believed me. Right? This thing worked. Um, uh, we only uh, had it in the test market, but it really grew uh, business, and people were just suddenly interested. It was, a, for us, a very satisfying campaign. We got invited to... Uh, to weddings, uh, we still get notes every once in a while from, from these guys. It, it was just a, a, a great special group, a, a very satisfying, gratifying uh, 
<laughs> it was, no, it was only in test market uh, for a very technical reason. We, uh, uh, this is a Clorox brand. Clorox had an exclusive relationship with DDB, their ad agency. And DDB came, saw this, felt scared shitless, said, here we have the contract. They're not allowed to do this, and we got off air. It's about as simple as it gets. It's luckily, has changed. Um, but at the time, that's the bullshit you, you deal with. Uh, so uh, um, I wanted to have a, a couple of final music. I'm, I'm about done. Um, uh, and especially for, for you guys, right, for the design school, I wanted to have kind of two thoughts uh, from us on or two pieces of advice, especially when you get out in the, in the real world on, on kind of what to do. And I think the most important for me is develop empathy, right? We are in such a narcissistic industry where it's all about our ego, it's all about our style and, and what we do, and it's really about them. And, and understanding the lore of a brand, where it came from, the persona, the sensibility of a brand, and the culture that you're going into. And it, it really is a lot like method acting. And I think that's where we, as an industry, fall short very much. And whether it's a design industry, product design industry, uh, or, or marketing communications, it is about understanding the other side, getting yourself into, uh, into the minds of of the people and of the brand that you are. So I'll give you one example. So we're working on STP right now. And I am proudly doing a radio campaign on Rush Limbaugh, right? Which personally makes my stomach just go, but it's right for that brand. And, and we went into this, you know, this blue collar, uh, collar uh, Southern guy who, voted for Bush twice in a row, and I like that guy. And I understand him, and I, I have empathy for him because I understand his values, and there is some relationship that we have, and there are some values that we have in common. And I think that is really important. And it's, you know, we talk a lot uh, internally about method acting, and I just want to show you one quick clip about what that really means. I always try and build a, um, a history for each character. Do you? Very much so, yeah, absolutely. So I, you know, what were they like as a child, and um, how did they have siblings? What was their relationship like with their mother, with their father? Did they go to school? What was it? You know, all of those things, and really try and create a full person, so that hopefully, when an audience meets the character and sees them on screen, they really feel the presence of a of a, a well-rounded individual, and they can feel a sense of history and, and depth. And you just hope to God that somehow all that research is going to pay is going to pay off. Is the last line, right? But that I think that's what we got to do as an industry is, is go a lot deeper into that understanding and kind of getting into character. And the uh, final thing, I didn't know how to say that positively. Uh, it's about let's not pull stuff out of our ass. Right? I mean, that's what we do a whole lot. We kind of have this, oh, let's go do this, or I saw something in this design book and it was really beautiful, so I want to apply it to this. It's all about substantiating. It's all about doing real, ugly, hard, boring research in order to get somewhere. I just want to show you a, a, a couple of slides, and I promise those are the last ones, on the work that we did on uh, Altoids. We worked on Altoids about uh, four years ago. 
and while it was a, a, a marketing communications job, we went really understand this brand, and, and we did a study that basically, uh, we studied everything from the history of the brand to the product shape history, the packaging shape history, packaging colors, packaging fonts, to down to the advertising, and, and basically we looked at every single ad ever produced by them, how it worked, what it meant, and so forth. Just a couple of quick slides, I won't go through them, but that's kind of the level of detail that we, that we went through uh, on, you know, on uh, uh, packaging color, et cetera, uh, you know, font history and what it really means. Uh, we went, uh, we went fairly, uh, fairly deep there and it, it helped. It helps tremendously, right? Because suddenly you have a substantiation. You don't go in and say, let's go do this because we feel like we, there is a real rationale for it. So, um, oops, I just uh, gave away the punchline. Uh, but uh, you know, even down to Valentine's, where did these come from, et cetera. Yeah. So there's really, guys, there's nothing left to say. Uh, <laughs> Um, well, it, what you do then, you substantiate through the culture, right? You, you, you figure out who could this appeal to, and you then go really deep into understanding what makes these people tick, what's their sensibility, their beliefs, their idioms, etc. And because you're, you're basically either designing or, or marketing to them. Yeah. With an existing brand, it's much easier because you can go back into the lore of this brand. So we, we do a lot of work with Cadbury. And I sent a team into the archives in Bourneville in, in the UK for a week. And they came back with stacks and stacks of stuff. But we know everything about the history of Cadbury. We've, we've seen every packaging iteration. We've seen every anecdote and story that could be relevant. So it's very easy for us by now to design for them. Have you ever worked with the uh, product development um, side of a company where they're looking to uh, extend an existing brand and input? And could you describe sort of that working relationship? It's, uh, it's nasty <laughs> because we work so counterintuitive to how they work. So we, we do, we are basically, we are Cadbury's innovation shop globally. And uh, over the last two years, we've probably done eight new product developments from India, China, to the UK, uh, Mexico, etc. And what typically happen, happens is you go from engineering out, right? You have a, some process that is better or whatever, and we go culture concept in, right? And there is a real clash there. So what we figured out is we do we do it kind of parallel to them, separate. And that works probably best. No? Do, do you foresee a, a future where there's a saturation of realness in the market? <laughs> like yeah, absolutely. Like absolutely. So yeah. the next book that I want to write is, uh, 
is going to be titled Authentish, all right? Um, because as soon as you try to be real, you can't be real anymore, right? So authenticity is a thing that's just absolutely disappearing uh, from our landscape. But you can, you can come close, right? And that's what we call authentish, right? Um, and, uh, um, and that's going to be the... That's going to be the next big thing. Cracking that is, you know, whoever cracks coming around as genuine, because now it's all about your credibility. You're no longer an authority. So you kind of have to figure some other way out to be credible, right? And, and being an authenticity to us is all about being true to yourself, right? And that's where this whole getting into character thing really becomes important that you speak as that brand and you speak in the sensibility and in the literacy of the culture that you're going into. Yeah, but absolutely, yeah. I have the microphone. <laughs> Here. I <laughs> um, just wanted to ask, um, I, my opinion was like culture has been created by people since centuries ago and then brands suddenly realized that they could actually took us hostage and they kind of uh, took the role of creating culture. They tried to do that. And i just wondering what happened, uh, what sort of event triggered people taking control of, of that again, in your opinion? I'm not quite sure I understand the question. Okay, let me try again. You know, like, uh, I mean, culture created by, by scientists and, and musicians and, and then brands started creating culture, right? Create, defining cool on their own. Yeah. Like Nike or whatever. And on your uh, first slides, you're mentioning there's a shift, right? Where like yes. people are taking control of that again. Yeah. Well, what, what happened then? I think what happened is, is basic postmodern theory. We just don't believe in it anymore. And another thing that happened is that technology really allowed us to take charge a lot more. It's uh, culture making is really difficult, and there's culture and culture. You know, there are uh, some agencies out there. Crispin Porter is, is one famous example that call themselves culture maker, but they do short trends. You know, they do little gimmicks and little things that create attention for a little while, but there's nothing really meaningful and substantive about it. Um, Dove achieved that, and, and they achieved that in a way where they kind of let go of the message. They were, I mean, while it's a bit rhetorical, they still ask people, do you find this beautiful or don't you find this beautiful? So it became more of a platform for people to create culture and real culture and about significant topics. Um, and that's going to continue. And, and there are, you know, especially if you're that successful, people will try to copy you, right? And some people will crack it. Yeah, I'm not sure I answered it correctly, but. So I really like your idea on um, an emerging self into a culture and um, saying, you know, I'm uncomfortable, but I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. And I think it's a really cool concept. Um, but I wonder how you choose what culture is. I mean, you can define it and frame it however you want to, but when you come into a certain situation like Dove or mm -hmm. Harley or whatever mm -hmm. concept, like how do you choose what your culture is going to be? The culture defines itself through the people 
that are most passionate about the brand, right? So basically, we look at the at the people surrounding that, right? That community that is around a brand, and that's the culture. By definition, that's the culture, and then we just try to detect what the nature of that culture is, right? Uh, with Altoids, it was very simple because we had a decade of history behind it, and it was very clearly about eccentricity. You know, STP, very easy again. You know, Southern culture, um, you know, STP evolved out of dirt racing. It's redneck, right? I mean, that is the culture you're going into. Yeah, so I, it, it kind of defines itself. I'm just wondering how you pick the media that you choose to get your message out with. Like. Yeah, uh, last, um, what we are doing by now is we're developing content ideas. And then they kind of lend themselves to specific media. So we're doing a, uh, this radio campaign for STP right now. Uh, and we'd never, never thought about radio before. But once we understood where this was going, it was kind of rants that were written. They just so lent themselves to radio. It was a natural thing. So what we like to do first is, is get to a meme. So for STP, it was, so the process that we did is, so we went into redneck culture. We, we understood that fix it yourself is the ethos within that culture. Um, and so it was all about getting your hands dirty again. Right? And then we basically took that and we looked at, at culture at large and we realized we as a culture are no longer self-sufficient. We can order Domino's pizza from our sofa with our TiVo. Right? I have no idea even how to open the hood to my car. So you know, it all became about self-sufficiency. Then we had the creative idea of don't be that guy. Right? Don't be the guy who doesn't know how to open the hood to your car. And we uh, brought in a creative team. We handpicked a, a, a stand-up comic from the Blue Collar uh, Comedy uh, Tour. We uh, brought in a scriptwriter from, uh, 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 from Fox's um, Family Guy and uh, American Dad, a couple of journalists. And we created this thing together. And, and one of the things that came out was this rant. And it was just like, my god, that's a, that's a radio campaign. And we should put that on Limbaugh. That's how that, it, it kind of, we're doing it the other way around. So it's, it sounds like when you're doing it right, it, it'll really resonate with, the, with that particular culture. Mm -hmm. um, how do you either kind of go beyond that culture or do you just? Yeah, good question. What we look for is, is we basically uh, uh, view the mainstream as sympathizers to that particular culture, right? And, and what we try to tap into is, is values and ideas that resonate with a larger audience, but that arise out of that culture, right? So fix it yourself is something that I think all of us somehow have in us. Our entire campaign is about shaming us into becoming self-sufficient again, right? And that is a mainstream message, but it arises out of that particular culture. Right, so we try to find values that kind of that particular culture and a broader audience have in, in common. Thanks, thanks everyone for coming. Um, thank you, Alex.
So uh, that's the last lecture in the Lou Lecture series for this quarter. Um, but uh, all three lectures of the quarter were filmed, and they'll be going up on uh, iTunes University um, in video and MP3. Um, and I just wanted to uh, thank Alex with some Stanford propaganda uh, here. Thank you very much. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for coming. And if you're looking for the video, um, if you Google Lou Lectures, L-I-U Lectures, uh, there's a Google group you can sign up for email, and also loulectures.blogspot.com, and you can get the info through there. For more, please visit us at stanford.edu.